This morning I'll be preaching from Isaiah 25, continuing my series. Some people got that. That's good. Back in January, I started a series in Isaiah. It was Isaiah 6. Today is going to be Isaiah 25. If you came expecting, as was normally scheduled, John, I apologize. I am not John. Uh, And I will be preaching from Isaiah instead of the Gospel of John. Uh, But I am happy to fill the pulpit this morning. It is always an honor to share God's word, especially so that our pastors can be doing the work they need to do elsewhere. In Isaiah 25, let me give you a little bit of a rundown of where we are. As is usual when I preach, we are jumping in the middle of a very large text and complicated text with words that you probably don't know in a context that you might not be aware of. So for the first 45 minutes, I will set the context. In the last 10, I will tell you about Jesus. Oh, if only you would let me. The book of Isaiah is a book really about two cities. In one sense, they are the same city, but they are separated by time. We open in the book of Isaiah chapter 1, and we see the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God. And what we see there is it is ravaged by sin, it is ravaged by idolatry, it is ravaged by injustice. By the time we get to the 66th chapter of Isaiah, what we see is we see a Jerusalem that has been restored. Where the presence of God dwells, he is rightly worshipped, and justice reigns through a faithful king, and his people are blessed. We find ourselves in chapter 25, in the midst of that journey from one city to another. And the question is, how do we get there? In the words of Isaiah, I think the central question of the book is, in whom will you trust to get you from this city to that city? From sin, injustice, and idolatry to righteousness, faithfulness, and the worship in the presence of God. The book of Isaiah answers this question by saying, You trust in the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one who created all things, who redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, and has given you the promised land, and his servant king, the one faithful, true, and right king who is coming to set all things right. And so on this journey, here we are in chapter 25, and here's what has happened. Isaiah's ministry begins, and all of Israel is in the promised land. It is a divided kingdom, but it is there. But at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, what he sees is the people of God beginning to be exiled. The land that God had promised to his people and in which they live is being taken from them. And the people are being scattered to the nations. At this point, 11 of the 12 tribes have been exiled and taken over by Assyria. And in the midst of this, there's always this contrast that God shows. Your present reality is exile and judgment, but your future hope is restoration under a faithful king and faithful God. And so what we see is, here is who you are, here is who I am, in whom will you trust? When we get to chapter 25, we are on the back end of a series of judgments against cities and nations, including Jerusalem. Unfortunately, despite Assyria coming in in judgment against, from God against his people, they continue to trust in other gods and in their own strength. And so the Lord pronounces judgment on the nations that have not believed in him and set themselves against him in their pride and against his people. 
And on the back end of this, we see a future vision. That those who have set themselves against God, they will be brought down and made low because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But no matter how weak or poor or needy, the one who is who has trusted in God, they will be highly exalted and lifted up and reign with him. This chapter, we see that contrast. And so as I'm about to read the text, what I would ask you is this. What do you think your response would be if all around you, your world was literally falling apart? Your family was being torn apart by war. The land which you thought God had promised you was being taken. And you don't know whether or not God loves you or is faithful to you. What would you do in response to that? How would you feel? Isaiah 25 and the big idea of this text is this, as God's people, even in the midst of that, this text commands us to worship, to weep, and to wait with hope in God's saving work. In the midst of all that, this text calls us to worship, to weep, and to wait with hope. In God's saving work. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have accomplished wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will honor you. The cities of violent nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms and a shade from heat. When the breath of the violent is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry land, you will subdue the uproar of barbarians. As the shade of a cloud cools the heat of the day, so he will silence the song of the violent. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, He will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the Lord's power will rest on this mountain. But Moab will be trampled in his place. As straw is trampled in a dung pile, he will spread out his arms in the middle of it. As a swimmer spreads out his arms to swim, his pride will be brought low, along with the trickery of his hands. The high-walled fortress will be brought down, thrown to the ground, to the dust. This is God's word.
You may be seated. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the context that I just set, that's the literary and historical context for chapter 25 of Isaiah, doesn't it seem strange that in the midst of tearing apart of the, the nation of God's people, that I think Isaiah speaking here says, Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name. Here Isaiah begins as the world is falling apart around him and his response is to worship God. For you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. He is confident in the faithfulness of his God. He goes on in verse 2, For you have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. Usually I think when I think about God's perfect faithfulness, I don't think then about a city being destroyed. I think about his love toward me, his grace toward me. I don't think about his judgment, but included within God's perfect faithfulness to his word and his character. Yes, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious, but he will also not let the guilty go unpunished. Part of his faithful outworking of history is those who have set themselves against him and his people, they will be made low. And I think this is speaking generally about all those. This city represents those who have set themselves up against God. And we can see this if we look just a little bit back into 24 and a little bit into 26. When we look back into 24, it talks about the moon will be put to shame in verse 23, and the sun disgraced because the Lord of armies will reign as king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and he will display his glory in the presence of his elders. Here is Jerusalem, the city where God dwells, and his glory is displayed contrasted with the city that does not hope and trust in him that is destroyed. We can see the same thing going into chapter 26. On that day, this song, verse 1 of chapter 26, will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, and notice what its walls are made of. They are not man-made. Salvation is established as its walls. It is a city that is built by God and cannot be destroyed, and so this is a contrast of two cities, the redeemed city of his people and the city that has set up itself in pride and arrogance against God. Both of these are expressions of God's perfect faithfulness to his word, to his promises, and to his character. The question is, which, in which one do you stand? In which one do you dwell? Verse 3 says, Therefore strong people will honor you. The cities of violent nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms and a shade from the heat. As he goes on, he says, these violent nations that have been oppressing the people of God, they are going to fear God because they exploited the poor and needy, but God served them. This is just part of the character of who God is. You can read this throughout the scriptures. Read through the Psalms and you'll see how often it is that God bends his ear toward those in need, the poor, the needy. The fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, those who do not have the means to provide for themselves, God provides for them, and it's a part of his essential character as God. So as the one who rules over all things, instead of using his power to dominate, he uses it to serve. 
In which city do you stand? When the breath of the violent is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry land, you will subdue the uproar of barbarians. As a shade of a cloud cools in the heat of the day, so he will silence the song of the violent. Living in Memphis, it is not too hard to understand the need for shade in the heat of the day. I think yesterday it got into the low to mid-90s. Today I think it's getting up to 97 degrees. And so I just want you to picture the oppression that they're facing feels like you're just in that heat. In the sun with nothing to protect you. It wouldn't feel too good. And the Lord is like the shade that comes with a cloud that protects you from the heat. The relief that you find in that. That's the picture of who our God is for the poor, the needy, the one who cries out to him. The one who finds refuge in him. Another way to ask what city do you find yourself in is to ask this. In whom do you find refuge? In what do you find refuge? When stress, anxiety in your life, maybe even questioning whether God loves you and his faithfulness towards you begins to happen. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn for hope? There are many false things that this world promises will give you comfort, and it might ease the pain for a minute, but it cannot solve the source of the pain. And so it is tempting to turn to alcohol. It is tempting to turn toward other substances to ease that pain, and it will for a minute. But in the end, if that's your refuge, it will bring destruction. Maybe what you do is at work, you go now 90 to nothing. I don't want to worry about my problems. I got to be at the office. I got to work more and I got to work more and I got to work more. So then keep my mind off and I can just go and you're going to burn out because it's not rest. It's work. It's not a refuge. It will destroy you. Others of us are on the opposite end. Instead of going 90 to nothing and working as hard as we can, we shut down. We say, I just need to sleep. I can't, I can't address my problems. We're conflict averse. And instead of addressing our problems, they just continue to fester and grow, and they'll end up destroying us. Perhaps we just sit at home and we scroll through our phones, we find our comfort in social media, we find our comfort in images that bring delight to our eyes, and all of these things will satisfy us maybe for a moment. But if you have sought those as a refuge and the comfort for your problems to ignore them or to drive at the heart of them apart from Christ, you have already experienced. They do not solve your problem. They are not a refuge. They will destroy you. Here, Isaiah worships the Lord. How often in your time of need for God, do you think, here's what I need to do. My first impulse is to worship when a problem comes along. Anybody? Raise your hand. But this is Isaiah's impulse. Why? Because he believes in God's perfect, faithful character and that he's in the midst of it. So brothers and sisters, the next time you face a problem and you feel that anxiety, you feel anger, you feel bitterness toward others or toward God, I encourage you to worship like Isaiah does. Maybe even these exact words. Even if you don't quite understand how it works out, that's okay. Because the word says it and so it's true. And so you can go to God in the midst of your problems and say, Lord, you are my God. 
I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have accomplished wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. And so I trust you now even though I can't see it. You are my refuge. How often do you go to prayer as a first step instead of a last resort? How often do you seek the fellowship of believers who will confront you in your sin and take you to the refuge who is Christ? Brothers and sisters, when you see someone else who's finding refuge somewhere else other than in our God, how often do you seek to bring them to the refuge who is Christ and say, brother, sister, that will not satisfy. Let us go to the Lord together. How often do you bring them before the throne of grace and say, Lord, I'm fighting for my brother and my sister. I see the heat that they are under. I see that they are withering away and they're not coming to you. Oh, Lord, be with them. Be the coolness in the midst of the day for them. I see that they're being oppressed by others. Just like you did in Isaiah 25 and you served the poor and needy were a refuge for them. Would you be a refuge for my brother? for my sister the picture that comes to mind is the picture of the paralytic in Mark who could not get up and walk so what do his friends do they carry him to Jesus they not only seek to carry him to Jesus but when there's a crowd in their way and they can't get their friend to Jesus what do they do they climb up onto the roof of the house they dig through the roof and lower their friend because they know what he needs to be healed he needs Jesus do you have that same passion for the members of Midtown Baptist Church? That when you see them in need, do you get excited that someone else has the struggles that you do? Or do you seek to bring them to Jesus so that they can be healed? Not only are you seeking refuge in Christ, but are you bringing others to the refuge who is Christ? The first thing we do as God's people when we are faced with these situations is we worship and exalt his name because he is worthy of it and he is good. The second thing that we do might seem counterintuitive and contrary to worship is we weep. Verses six through eight show us this. Say on this mountain that is Mount Zion, the, the place of God's dwelling where his temple is, on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. You might say, Mark, there's not a whole lot of weeping going on in that text. Well, I needed a W to go with the others. Just kidding. This is a future vision of God's restoration, right? And notice what he's going to do. He will wipe away tears. But that means it's okay in the midst of your problem and struggle and distress and oppression and need to weep. Recently, we've heard John preach through the Gospel of John. And what is it that Jesus does? When his friend Lazarus dies, the one whom he loves, 
Even though Jesus knows the end, it's going to end in God's glory. He even tells his friends that. He tells his disciples, this is going to end in God's glory. But when Mary and Martha come to him and they weep at his feet because their friend has died, what does Jesus do? Come on, guys, stop crying. It's just death. I'm the resurrection and the life. He does tell them he, he's the resurrection of life, but he weeps with them in the midst of their pain. If you think that it's not okay to weep, that you only have to worship, that it's got to be all joy all the time, not mixed with sadness in the midst of this world, then that is not a biblical, godly understanding of what it means to be a faithful Christian. Otherwise, there will be no tears to wipe from your face. So as we worship, we also weep because the pain that we face in the world is real. Practically speaking, one of the things I love about the Christian faith over against other religions is that it does not deny that suffering exists. It says, oh, no, 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 the suffering is very real. Your pain is legitimate. But I know a God who can heal you. He has entered into that pain to overcome it. And the picture here that's given to us is in the midst of our weeping, he invites us to this feast at the end of time. He sets a table. And I love that. I mean, it's hard not to think of Psalm 23 that he sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Right? Here they are, the enemies here, just listed, and their judgment's going to come to them. And then God sets a feast for those who are poor and needy. Come and enjoy the riches of your God. And this, the way this, this is translated, on this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud covering all peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. Hides a little bit of the imagery that's here. It, it's in keeping with the feast imagery. It doesn't just say that he will destroy death. It says that he will swallow up death forever. That's how he's going to destroy it. And I love this imagery so much. One, I just love the idea of the Lord inviting us to a feast that he has prepared for us to enjoy him. But he's also invited someone else. He's invited death to the table. And in the ancient Near East, there was this concept of death, the God of death being invited to the table, except death was there to consume everything at the table, including the chief God of some of the nations. And the Lord says, oh yeah, death's invited to my banquet for sure. But he's not invited to consume my people, and he will not consume me. He sits at the table as a part of the meal, and he will be swallowed up forever. That's the picture of what our God is doing. It says the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face. There's weeping in the meantime. Children, if I could talk to you for a second, the younger folks... You know, for some of our congregation, I would be young enough to be one of their children, apparently. So maybe I'm also talking to myself. I don't know if you've realized this, but crying is a part of life. You're going to shed tears. And if you haven't figured that out yet or how much that is a part of your life, ask your parents. I think that they would be able to tell you. But we cry for a lot of different reasons. Some are good, some are bad. Sometimes when we cry, it's because of joy. Right? You laugh so hard, you cry. We laugh at a lot of different things. There are a lot of silly things in this world that make us smile and make us laugh. Sometimes it's something that surprises us in the moment. Sometimes we're around the dinner table and maybe somebody's make, 
body makes a noise that's a little funny, and so we start laughing. And as the roar goes up, eventually you can't hear us laughing anymore. It turns into that silent laugh. And then there's the tear that starts to come down our face. Joy can lead to tears. The Lord doesn't want to take those tears away from you. He wants you to experience the joy that's in him. But there are other tears that we have that you're aware of. You scrape your knee running or riding a bike or riding on a scooter and you start to cry. Maybe a friend makes fun of you at school and it causes you to cry. Maybe a sibling does something to make you cry. I'm sure that's not the case. But maybe a brother or sister doesn't. Even your parents sometimes make decisions that you feel like causes you pain and it makes you cry. I want to tell you that the Lord wants to wipe those tears away. Just like when you scrape your knee, you come to your parent, I hope you've had the experience of your parent holding you, cupping your face in their hand and wiping the tear from your face as they embrace you. The picture that we see in the scriptures is that our heavenly father wants to do that for you. He wants you to trust in him because he's that good God. In the midst of your pain, you can cry out to him and he will wipe your tears away. I would like to tell you that crying is only a part of childhood, but it's not. Sometimes the pain that we experience only gets bigger and more painful. And you adults, I think you're aware of this. We go from scraped knees to cancer diagnosis. We experience the betrayal of friends at a high level, the fracturing of fellowship. We experience those that we once thought were faithful to us or unfaithful. Those that we love harm us. We even experience the death more and more as we go throughout life because the more years that we live, the more we'll experience the death of loved ones and friends. The picture here is that the Lord wants to wipe away those tears if you would trust in him. And I want you to hear this. He doesn't say don't weep. He says weep so that I can wipe away your tears. Find in me your refuge. The good news is that we get a foretaste of these things, of the feast that's coming on that mountain. We get a foretaste of that here as we gather with the people of God, as we worship in his presence. We also get tiny tastes because we also cry not only because of pain, but we cry for many other reasons. We cry out of joy. I hope that you still have friends that cause you to laugh until you're loud and then that silent cry and then the tears appear. And if you don't, come on over. We'll laugh. I'll make you cry, hopefully tears of joy. But we also cry when we see beautiful things and we're just overwhelmed. Maybe if you're into classical music, of course you like Rachmaninoff and Chopin, and then you listen to their music and it makes you cry. Based on the wedding of Hannah and Grant, it's more likely that the latest T-Swift song is so beautiful to you that it makes you cry. Maybe it's a sunset. Maybe it's the beauty, like at Grant and Hannah's wedding, of the groom for the first time seeing his bride and walking down the aisle. 
Sometimes we are simply overwhelmed by beauty and we shed tears. God doesn't want to take those tears away. He wants you to enjoy his good world and find beauty in it. But sometimes we do experience pain. But the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. One of my favorite novels, Gilead, Marilyn Robinson simply says this of this verse. She says, it takes nothing from the loveliness of the verse to say that is exactly what will be required. The pain that we've experienced in this world requires that God wipe away our tears. And he could have said it in many different ways, but he says it very individually, tears from every face, that when you see him finally face to face, he will cup your face in his hands and wipe the tears from your face and say, welcome home. So we worship as God's people, we weep as God's people, but we also wait in the hope of his salvation. Verse 9 says, on that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the Lord's power will rest on this mountain. You see the word wait there several times. Look, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. It's a theme throughout the book of Isaiah, and it's a theme from beginning to end, Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22. Because I wish I could tell you, like I told the children, that your tears will end soon, but they're not going to. Not until the Lord comes back. So maybe he's going to come back tomorrow and it'll be soon, but I don't have any insight into that. And if you talk to somebody who thinks they do, don't listen. They don't know. And so what do we do day in, day out, since we don't know if it's tomorrow or in 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 years that the Lord's coming back? We wait, but look at how we wait. We don't just sit idly by. We rejoice in who our God is. You'll also notice that we've shifted from the first person uh, singular to the plural. The beginning, Isaiah was just saying, look, this is my God. Lord, you are my God. But having recounted what God has done now for the salvation of his people, the people gather around with Isaiah and they worship together. Look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. Part of God's perfect faithfulness is that he's not going to work on your timetable to do what you think he ought to do now in this world. But his perfect faithfulness is his timing is always right and perfect. And his promises are always true. And so he will bring salvation to his people. Wait for him. Part of the question is how do I have joy in the midst of suffering? This is something that is addressed again throughout the scriptures. If you only look to the present... There is no source of joy for you that can sustain you. Constantly, what the scriptures do is they point forward and say, your pain is real. Worship and weep in the middle of it, but wait because a better day is coming. And because of that future salvation, we can have joy in the present. I went to one of Pastor Joshua's meal preps, and we were looking at the book of James, and he preached on this reward that's coming, this crown of life that we're going to get. And sometimes when we talk about wanting reward from God, we get a little squeamish, right? 
I used to be a little squeamish about it until I just kept reading the scriptures and I was like, I'm all about the reward. So I just laid it out there at meal prep. I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you guys, Pastor Joshua can correct me if I'm wrong. But one of the main reasons I continue to follow Jesus is because there is a reward waiting for me in the end. If this reward, if that feast is not going to be set by God himself for his people, then I'm not going to wait for it. The waiting is based on the picture that he just gave you. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for 6 through 8 in Isaiah 25. That's what we're waiting for. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for what we read in Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried on a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And what are they saying? Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. I love the question the elders ask. Who are these people? And where they come from? I said to him, sir. Oh, man, I lost it here. That's a bummer. Sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation through suffering. What did they do? They waited on their God. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, as our brother Phil emphasized, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in the temple. The one seated on the throne will what? Shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer be in need of food. They will no longer thirst. They will no longer be in need of drink. The sun will no longer strike them because God has become the shade in the midst of the heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. As an elder, I think we're okay shepherds. We're not the worst. We're probably not the best. But it's okay for you to look forward to a better shepherd looking over you. The lamb himself will shepherd, sorry Luke. He will guide them to the springs of the waters of life and listen to this, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This vision is built off in part Isaiah 25, the feast that is there. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for Revelation 21. Three through five, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And here's part of the beauty of it. When I wipe the tears from my kids' faces, I anticipate in about 15 minutes there's gonna be more tears. Why? Well, one, from experience. Two, sin is still in our family brokenness is still there. But in this final day, when God wipes our tears from our eyes, it's not just the tears, the symptom of the problem, but the very cause will be done away with. Because here's what Revelation 21.4 says, death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Why? Because the one seated on the throne says this, I am making everything new. That is what we're waiting for. And if you forget the joy that you have, even in the midst of suffering and pain and trial and oppression and broken relationships and your own sin, you've got to come back to the vision of what God is going to do because what he's going to do in the future brings you joy in the presence because it is a certainty because he is faithful to his promises.
So let us rejoice because we wait for him. There's a final picture here in Isaiah, second half of verse 10 into 12. But Moab will be trampled in his place as straw is trampled on a dung pile. He will spread out his arms in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his arms to swim. His pride will be brought low along with the trickery of his hands. The high-walled fortress will be brought down, thrown to the ground, to the dust. Final picture of the judgment that comes from those who don't find their refuge in him. Why Moab? It's an important question when you think about the people groups in the Bible, the Moabites might not be the first that come to your mind. Especially as God's enemies, we might think of Assyria or Babylon, maybe Persia. But why Moab? Earlier in Isaiah 16, the offer of refuge for Moab had been offered by the Lord that Moab would be able to come to his land and find refuge and peace from the Assyrian army. Listen to these words. Send lambs to the ruler of the land from Salem, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in the desert. He's talking about Moab. To the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Like a bird fleeing, forced from the nest, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. They're being forced out into exile. Give us counsel and make a decision. Shelter us at noonday with shade that is as dark as night. Hide the refugees. Do not betray the one who flees. Let my refugees stay with you. Be a refuge for Moab from the aggressor. Later, we have heard of Moab's pride. How very proud he is. His haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, and his empty boasting. Moab rejects the offer of refuge in God, and so God comes against them in judgment. If you are not a Christian this morning, the Lord offers you refuge in him this morning. We sung about it earlier. If you're waiting until you're nice and clean and fit and sin is gone to come to him, it will never happen. But here's the kindness of our God in the gospel. If you come to him and confess your sin, he doesn't reject you and shame you, but rather he welcomes you as his child. So he bids you this morning to find refuge in him. Do not be set up in your pride and say that you don't need him. Do not be set up in your pride and say that you are clean or righteous or good enough. You are not. And neither were we. The people here who are members of Midtown Baptist Church, the thing that separates us is not that we are okay in our own holiness, but rather that we have trusted in Christ for salvation. He offers you refuge this morning. I pray that you will take it. You could talk to me or any of our members after the service to find it. So when we look at Isaiah 25, in the midst of war, in the midst of pain, in the midst of exile, in the midst of death, what is it that Isaiah calls the people to do? He calls them to worship, to weep, and to wait. And we can do it all with joy. Amen. We now have the opportunity to sing of the hope that we have in Christ. We're seeing Christ, our hope in life and death. And here's the first verse that echoes the words of Isaiah 25. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end?
the love of Christ in which we stand. Please stand to sing with me, Christ, our hope in life and death.